Welcome to Read By, a new podcast where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. In this episode, novelist Rivka Galchin reads The Angel of the Bridge by John Cheever. To learn more from Galchin about her choice, check out the episode description. And now, Read By, Rivka Galchin. The Angel of the Bridge by John Cheever. You may have seen my mother waltzing on ice skates in Rockefeller Center. She's 78 years old now, but very wiry, and she wears a red velvet costume with a short skirt. Her tights are flesh-colored, and she wears spectacles and a red ribbon in her white hair, and she waltzes with one of the rink attendants. I don't know why I should find the fact that she waltzes on ice skates so disconcerting, but I do. I avoid that neighborhood whenever I can during the winter months, and I never lunch in the restaurants on the rink. Once when I was passing that way, a total stranger took me by the arm and pointing to mother said, look at that crazy old dame. I was very embarrassed. I suppose I should be grateful for the fact that she amuses herself and is not a burden to me. I sincerely wish she had hit on some less conspicuous recreation. Whenever I see gracious old ladies arranging chrysanthemums and pouring tea, I think of my own mother dressed like a hat check girl pushing some paid rink attendant around the ice in the middle of the third biggest city of the world. My mother learned to figure skate in the little New England village of St. Bottles, where we come from, and her waltzing is an expression of her attachment to the past. The older she grows, the more she longs for the vanishing and provincial world of her youth. She is a hardy woman, as you can imagine, but she does not relish change. I arranged one summer for her to fly to Toledo and visit friends. I drove her to the New York airport. She seemed troubled by the airport waiting room with its illuminated advertisements, vaulted ceiling, and touching and painful scenes of separation played out to an uproar of continuous tango music. She did not seem to find it in any way interesting or beautiful. And compared to the railroad station in St. Bottles, it was indeed a strange background against which to take one's departure. The flight was delayed for an hour and we sat in the waiting room Mother looked tired and old. When we had been waiting half an hour, she began to have some noticeable difficulty in breathing. She spread a hand over the front of her dress and began to gasp deeply, as if she was in pain. Her face got mottled and red. I pretended not to notice this. When the plane was announced, she got to her feet and exclaimed, I want to go home. If I have to die suddenly, I don't want to die in a flying machine. I cashed in her ticket and drove her back to her apartment. And I have never mentioned this seizure to her or to anyone, but her capricious or perhaps neurotic fear of dying in a plane crash was the first insight I had into how, as she grew older, her way was strewn with invisible rocks and lions and how eccentric were the paths she took as the world seemed to change its boundaries and become less and less comprehensible. At the time of which I'm writing, I flew a great deal myself. My business was in Rome, New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. And I sometimes traveled as often as once a month between these cities. I liked the flying. I liked the incandescence of the sky at high altitudes. I liked all eastward flights where you can see from the ports the edge of night move over the continent and where, when it's four o'clock by your California watch, the housewives of Garden City are washing up the supper dishes and the stewardess in the plane is passing a second round of drinks. Toward the end of the flight, the air is stale, you are tired, 
The gold thread in the upholstery scratches your cheek, and there is a momentary feeling of forlornness, a sulky and childish sense of estrangement. You find good companions, of course, and boars, but most of the errands we run at such high altitudes are humble and terrestrial. That old lady flying over the North Pole is taking a jar of calf's foot jelly to her sister in Paris, and the man beside her sells imitation leather in her soles. Flying westward one dark night, we had crossed the Continental Divide, but we were still an hour out of Los Angeles and had not begun our descent, and were at such an altitude that the sense of houses, cities, and people below us was lost. I saw a formation, a trace of light, like the lights that burn along a shore. There was no shore in that part of the world, and I knew I would never know if the edge of the desert or some bluff or mountain accounted for this hoop of light. But it seemed in its obscurity and at that velocity and height, like the emergence of a new world, a gentle hint at my own obsolescence, the lateness of my time of life, and my inability to understand the things I often see. It was a pleasant feeling, completely free of regret, of being caught in some observable mid-passage, the farther reaches of which might be understood by my sons. I liked to fly, as I say, and had none of my mother's anxieties. It was my older brother, her darling, who was to inherit her resoluteness, her stubbornness, her table silver, and some of her eccentricities. One evening, my brother, I had not seen him for a year or so, called and asked if he could come for dinner. I was happy to invite him. We live on the 11th floor of an apartment house, and at 7.30, he telephoned from the lobby and asked me to come down. I thought he must have something to tell me privately. But when we met in the lobby, he got into the automatic elevator with me, and we started up. As soon as the doors closed, he showed the same symptoms of fear I had seen in my mother. Sweat stood out on his forehead, and he gasped like a runner. What in the world is the matter, I asked. I'm afraid of elevators, he said miserably. But what are you afraid of? I'm afraid the building will fall down. I laughed, cruelly, I guess. For it all seemed terribly funny, his vision of the buildings of New York banging against another like nine pins as they fell to the earth. There has always been a strain of jealousy in our feelings about one another, and I am aware, at some obscure level, that he makes more money and he has more of everything than I. And to see him humiliated, crushed, saddened me, but at the same time, and in spite of myself, made me feel that I had taken a stunning lead in the race for honors that is at the bottom of our relationship. He is the oldest, he's the favorite, but watching his misery in the elevator, I felt that he was merely my poor old brother, overtaken by his worries. He stopped in the hallway to recover his composure and explained that he had been suffering from this phobia for over a year. He was going to a psychiatrist, he said. I couldn't see that it had done him any good. He was all right once he got out of the elevator, but I noticed that he stayed away from the windows. When it was time to go, I walked him out to the corridor. I was curious. When the elevator reached our floor, he turned to me and said, I'm afraid I'll have to take the stairs. I led him to the stairway and we climbed slowly down the 11 flights. He clung to the railing. We said goodbye in the lobby and I went up in the elevator and told my wife about his fear that the building might fall down. It seemed strange and sad to her, and it did to me too, but it also seemed terribly funny. It wasn't terribly funny when a month later, the firm he worked for moved to the 52nd floor of a new office building, and he had to resign. I don't know what reasons he gave, 
It was another six months before he could find a job in a third floor office. I once saw him on a winter dusk at the corner of Madison Avenue and 59th Street, waiting for the light to change. He appeared to be an intelligent, civilized, and well-dressed man. And I wondered how many of the men waiting with him to cross the street made their way as he did through a ruin of absurd solutions in which the street might appear to be a torrent and the approaching cab driven by the angel of death. He was quite all right on the ground. My wife and I went to his house in New Jersey with the children for a weekend and he looked healthy and well. I didn't ask about his phobia. We drove back to New York on Sunday afternoon. As we approached the George Washington Bridge, I saw a thunderstorm over the city. A strong wind struck the car the moment we were on the bridge and nearly took the wheel out of my hands. It seemed to me that I could feel the huge structure swing. Halfway across the bridge, I thought I felt the roadway begin to give. I could see no signs of a collapse. And yet I was convinced that in another minute, the bridge would split in two and hurl the long lines of Sunday traffic into the dark water below us. This imagined disaster was terrifying. My legs got so weak that I was not sure I could break the car if I needed to. Then it became difficult for me to breathe. Only by opening my mouth and gasping did I seem to be able to take in any air. My blood pressure was affected and I began to feel a darkening of my vision. Fear has always seemed to me to run a course and at its climax, the body and perhaps the spirit defend themselves by drawing on some new and fresh source of strength. Once over the center of the bridge, my pain and terror began to diminish. My wife and the children were admiring the storm and they did not seem to have noticed my spasm. I was afraid both that the bridge would fall down and that they might observe my panic. I thought back over the weekend for some incident that might account for my preposterous fear that the George Washington Bridge would blow away in a thunderstorm. But it had been a pleasant weekend. And even under the most exaggerated scrutiny, I couldn't uncover any source of morbid nervousness or anxiety. Later in the week, I had to drive to Albany. And although the day was clear and windless, the memory of my first attack was too keen. I hugged the east bank of the river as far north as Troy, where I found a small old fashioned bridge that I could cross comfortably. This meant going 15 or 20 miles out of my way, and it is humiliating to have your travels obstructed by barriers that are senseless and invisible. I drove back from Albany by the same route, and next morning I went to the family doctor and told him I was afraid of bridges. He laughed. You, of all people, he said scornfully, you'd better take hold of yourself. But mother is afraid of airplanes, I said, and brother hates elevators. Your mother is past 70, he said, and one of the most remarkable women I've ever known. I wouldn't bring her into this. What you need is a little more backbone. This was all he had to say, and I asked him to recommend an analyst. He does not include psychoanalysis in medical science and told me I would be, I would be wasting my time and money. But yielding to his obligations to be helpful, he gave me the name and address of a psychiatrist who told me that my fear of bridges was the surface manifestation of a deep-seated anxiety and that I would have to have a full analysis. I didn't have the time or the money or above all the confidence in the doctor's methods to put myself in his hands. And I said I would try and muddle through. There are obviously areas of true and false pain and my pain was meretricious, but how could I convince my lights and vitals of this? My youth and childhood had their 
deeply troubled and their jubilant years? And could some repercussions from the past account for my fear of heights? The thought of a life determined by hidden obstacles was unacceptable. And I decided to take the advice of a family doctor and ask more of myself. I had to go to Idlewild later in the week. And rather than take a bus or a taxi, I drove the car myself. I nearly lost consciousness on the Triborough Bridge. When I got to the airport, I ordered a cup of coffee, but my hand was shaking, so I spilled the coffee on the counter. The man beside me was amused and said that I must have put in quite a night. How could I tell him that I had gone to bed early and sober, but that I was afraid of bridges? I flew to Los Angeles late that afternoon. It was one o'clock by my watch when we landed. It was only 10 o'clock in California. I was tired and took a taxi to the hotel where I always stay, but I couldn't sleep. Outside my hotel window was a monumental statue of a young woman advertising a Las Vegas nightclub. She revolves slowly in a beam of light. At 2 a.m. the light is extinguished, but she goes on restlessly turning all through the night. I've never seen her cease her turning, and I wondered that night when they greased her axle and washed her shoulders. I felt some affection for her, since neither of us could rest. And I wondered if she had a family, a stage mother perhaps, and a compromised and broken-spirited father who drove a municipal bus on the West Pico line. There was a restaurant across the street and I watched a drunken woman in a sable cape being led out to a car. She twice nearly fell. The cross lights from the open door, the lateness, her drunkenness, and the solicitude of the man with her made the scene, I thought, worried and lonely. Then two cars that seemed to be racing down Sunset Boulevard pulled up at a traffic light under my view. Three men piled out of each car and began to slug one another. You could hear the blows land on bone and cartilage. When the light changed, they got back into their cars and raced off. The fight, like the hoop of light I had seen from the plane, seemed like the sign of a new world, but in this case, an emergence of brutality and chaos. Then I remembered that I was to go to San Francisco on Thursday and was expected in Berkeley for lunch. This meant crossing the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge, and I reminded myself to take a cab both ways and leave the car I rented in San Francisco in the hotel garage. I tried again to reason out my fear that the bridge would fall. Was I the victim of some sexual dislocation? My life had been promiscuous, carefree, and a source of immense pleasure. But was there some secret here that would have to be mined by a professional? Were all my pleasures and postures and evasions And was I really in love with my old mother in her skating costume? Looking at Sunset Boulevard at three in the morning, I felt that my terror of bridges was an expression of my clumsily concealed horror of what is becoming of the world. I can drive with composure through the outskirts of Cleveland and Toledo, past the birthplace of the Polish flat dog, the Buffalo burger stands, the used car lots, and the architectural monotony. I claim to enjoy walking down Hollywood Boulevard on a Sunday afternoon. I have cheerfully praised the evening sky, hanging beyond the disheveled and expatriated palm trees on Doheny Boulevard, stuck up against the incandescence like rank upon rank of wet mops. Duluth and East Seneca are charming, and if they aren't, just look away. The hideousness of the road between San Francisco and Palo Alto is nothing more than the search of honest men and women for a decent place to live. The same thing goes for San Pedro and all that coast. 
But the height of bridges seemed to be the one link I could not forge or fasten in this hypocritical chain of acceptances. The truth is, I hate freeways and buffalo burgers. Expatriated palm trees and monotonous housing developments depress me. The continuous music on special fare trains exacerbates my feelings. I detest the destruction of familiar landmarks. I am deeply troubled by the misery and drunkenness I find among my friends. I abhor the dishonest practices I see. And it was at the highest point in the arc of the bridge that I became aware suddenly of the depth and bitterness of my feelings about modern life and of the profoundness of my yearning for a more vivid, simple, and peaceable world. But I couldn't reform Sunset Boulevard. And until I could, I couldn't drive across the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge. What could I do? Go back to St. Bottles, wear a Norfolk jacket, and plate cribbage in the firehouse? There was only one bridge in the village, and you could throw a stone across the river there. I got home from San Francisco on Saturday and found my daughter back from school for the weekend. On Sunday morning, she asked me to drive her to the convent school in Jersey, where she is a student. She had to be back in time for nine o'clock mass, and we left our apartment in the city a little after seven. We were talking and laughing, and I had approached and was in fact on the George Washington Bridge without having remembered my weakness. There were no preliminaries this time. The seizure came with a rush. The strength went out of my legs. I gasped for breath and felt the terrifying loss of sight. I was, at the same time, determined to conceal these symptoms from my daughter. I made the other side of the bridge, but I was violently shaken. My daughter didn't seem to have noticed. I got her to school in time, kissed her goodbye, and started home. There was no question of my crossing the George Washington Bridge again, and I decided to drive north to Nyack and across on the Tappan Zee Bridge. It seemed in my memory more gradual and more securely anchored to its shores. Driving up the parkway on the west shore, I decided that oxygen was what I needed and I opened all the windows of the car. The fresh air seemed to help, but only momentarily. I could feel my sense of reality ebbing. The roadside and the car itself seemed to have less substance than a dream. I had some friends in the neighborhood and I thought of stopping and asking them for a drink, but it was only a little after nine in the morning and I could not face the embarrassment of asking for a drink so early in the day and of explaining that I was afraid of bridges. I thought I might feel better if I talked to someone. And I stopped at a gas station and bought some gas, but the attendant was laconic and sleepy, and I couldn't explain to him that his conversation might make the difference between life and death. I had got onto the throughway by then, and I wondered what alternatives I had if I couldn't cross the bridge. I could call my wife and ask her to make some arrangements for removing me, but our relationship involved so much self-esteem and face that to admit openly to this foolishness might damage our married happiness. I could call the garage we use and ask them to send up a man to chauffeur me home. I could park the car and wait until one o'clock when the bars opened and fill up on whiskey, but I had spent the last of my money on gasoline. I decided to take a chance and turned on to the approach to the bridge. All the symptoms returned, and this time they were much worse than ever. The wind was knocked out of my lungs as by a blow. My equilibrium was so shaken that the car swerved from one lane into another. I drove to the side and pulled on the handbrake. The loneliness of my predicament was harrowing. If I had been miserable with romantic love, racked with sickness or beastly drunk, it would have seemed more dignified. I remembered my brother's face, sallow and greasy with sweat in the elevator. 
and my mother in her red skirt, one leg held gracefully aloft as she coasted backward in the arms of a rink attendant. And it seemed to me that we were all three characters in some bitter and sordid tragedy, carrying impossible burdens and separated from the rest of mankind by our misfortunes. My life was over and it would never come back. Everything that I loved, blue sky courage, lustiness, the natural grasp of things, it would never come back. I would end up in the psychiatric ward of the country county hospital, screaming that the bridges, all the bridges in the world were falling down. Then a young girl opened the door of the car and got in. I didn't think anyone would pick me up on the bridge, she said. She carried a cardboard suitcase and, believe me, a small harp in a cracked waterproof. Her straight, light brown hair was brushed and brushed and grained with blondness and spread in a kind of cape over her shoulders. Her face seemed full and merry. Are you hitchhiking? I asked. Yes. But isn't it dangerous for a girl your age? Not at all. Do you travel much? All the time. I sing a little. I play the coffee houses. What do you sing? Oh, folk music mostly. And some old things, Purcell and Dowland, but mostly folk music. I gave my love a cherry that had no stone, she sang in a true and pretty voice. I gave my love a chicken that had no bone. I told my love a story that had no end. I gave my love a baby with no crying. She sang me across a bridge that seemed to be an astonishingly sensible, durable, and even beautiful construction designed by intelligent men to simplify my travels. And the water of the Hudson below was charming and tranquil. It all came back. Blue sky courage, the high spirits of lustiness, and ecstatic sereneness. Her song ended as we got to the toll station on the East Bank, and she thanked me, said goodbye, and got out of the car. I offered to take her wherever she wanted to go, but she shook her head and walked away, and I drove on toward the city through the world that, having been restored to me, seemed marvelous and fair. When I got home, I thought of calling my brother and telling him what had happened, on the chance that there was also an angel of the elevator banks, but the harp. That single detail threatened to make me seem ridiculous or mad, and I didn't call. I wish I could say that I'm convinced that there will always be some merciful intercession to help me with my worries. But I don't believe in rushing my luck, so I will stay off the George Washington Bridge, although I can cross the Triborough and the Tappan Zee with ease. My brother is still afraid of elevators, and my mother, although she's grown quite stiff, still goes around and around and around on the ice. Nine Two Wise Red By is produced and commissioned by New York's Nine Two Y Underberg Poetry Center, a home for live readings of literature for over 80 years. To invite more authors into your home, subscribe to Nine Two Wise Red By wherever you download podcasts. If you enjoyed this recording, please share it with a friend. Tag us on Twitter or Facebook, 92Y Poetry Center, and let us know your favorites. If you extra enjoyed and you're able in this uncertain time, please visit 92Y.org slash help now to donate to support 92Y and its new digital programming. We rely on your contributions. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Find more great readings at 92y.org slash archives. <laughs>